We good now? Oh, there it goes. I don't know what it was, but uh, here we are. So I was just going to comment that this is not apple juice. So that's uh, Scotia water, and it's clean. We wanted to avoid the bacteria and flesh-eating, you know, things in the water, and then we filled this with Gaucher City water and doubted our decision. So uh, we're going to run with it and see. Um, at the end of service, I am super excited to have our first in-house baptism, and also for me, first in-family baptism. So I'm like super, super, super excited, and I will, I think I'll be fine until we get to the end, and we'll just see what happens. So uh, let's dive into the Word this morning. I am excited about this passage so 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verse 3 in a minute. As we go there, let me set the stage for you in two ways. One, I want you to think about the, the idea of a good story. Does anybody like watching movies? Most of you know I do. Um, of course, a good superhero movie. Some people don't like superhero movies because they're all the same. And I want to be like, okay, well, yeah, but they're good. And that's why we like them because they're always the same. And the ones that we don't like are the ones that didn't follow the paradigm. Like, there's a specific way a superhero movie should start. There's a way it should go. There's a, that bottom where the superhero can't effectively use his powers. And all of a sudden, for no explainable reason whatsoever, right at the climax of the movie, all of a sudden he can, which, you know, is the thing everybody hates about superhero movies, except everybody loves that part in reality, and you get excited. That's why you want to see it, and he beats the bad guy, and everybody's happy. There's a, a paradigm. Yeah, Dwayne's excited. Just any movie, you know, origin story. Same sort of thing. You watch an M. Night Shyamalan movie, you know what I'm talking about, like Signs, or, and you know when you think the movie's about the climax, you, you withdraw your excitement because you know some big change is coming. Something you thought was going on wasn't going on, or something you knew wasn't going on actually was going on, and now it's coming. Or you like the horror genre. I don't like the horror genre because no matter how well you think it's going, everybody dies in the end. That's the point. That's just how the story goes. A Western, I mean, you know, there's always a particular pattern to how the story goes. I love those Jane Austen type movies, Pride and Prejudice and Emma. Don't judge me. There's like three people on my team here. I also like Marvel movies. So just, I'm cool. But I do like the Jane Austen stuff. And there's always this romance going on that seems like, hey, this might could work and then it can't work because somebody's a jerk or does something stupid, but then you, you go through a few more episodes or a few more hours of the saga, and it all works out, and it's the most romantic, peaceful, glorious marriage that you get to see the wedding day of, right? And, I mean, you know what happens after, but you, you just pretend, and you go with it. We recognize stories, and when we watch movies or read a good book or listen to a good story, even listen to a good joke, part of what makes it easy for us to communicate as humans is because we recognize patterns. We know that stories go a certain way. You don't have to go to school. You don't have to be educated to know this. If I came to a group of people that spoke English and just loudly said, knock, knock, right? I don't actually have a knock, knock joke, but you know how that starts, right? We have these paradigms. We have patterns. We have systems of communication, and biblical Christianity is saying a step beyond that. It's saying life has a specific pattern, especially for believers. There's a flow to your story. It may feel like chaos, but there is a pattern that if you are a Christ follower, your story, even though it's maybe unique to you in a billion ways, every superhero movie may be unique in a billion ways, but there's also that basic way all of those stories are the same. And Paul, 
defending himself in this text is going to reveal the basic bare-bone structure of what your Christian narrative is. Regardless of your background, regardless of how you got saved or how you move forward, this is what it looks like. This is the pattern we follow if we are Christians. So Paul's going to do that in the context of defending himself. So we've set up the idea, now let's set up the specific text. Paul is writing 2 Corinthians. You may remember, we've talked about the background a hundred times now. This is actually the fourth letter he wrote to the church. It's not the first. There's been some back and forth, and you may remember the basic nuts and bolts of this story is Paul plants the church. He leaves the church. Other people come to the church, do work in the church, who don't necessarily agree with everything the Apostle Paul said. That happens a number of times. Eventually, a group gets some power, some influence in the church who doesn't just not like Paul, they hate Paul. They think Paul's the enemy. He's preaching a false gospel, and they start trying to push the church towards a different kind of faith, a different kind of Jesus, which Paul would say means it's a different Jesus. It's not true gospel. So he comes back to the church to lay down the law, to tell them what is what, kind of a Galatians story. If you've read the book of Galatians where Paul starts off, he gives his opening instead of this, oh, I'm so thankful for you. He's like, what is your problem? You left the gospel. He does that except not in pen and paper. He goes in person to Corinth, to the church. He had planted years before with that same idea. What is wrong? You should believe the gospel I preached, except it didn't go well. They ran him out of town, ran him out of the church, and rather than demonstrating some apostolic authority, which he could rightly have done, he left. He, with his tail between his legs, he leaves Corinth. And then we watch him trying to do his ministry after he leaves Corinth, and he says, even when a wide door was open for him in ministry, he couldn't do it. Because all he could think about was that church he had planted in Corinth and how they had rejected him. And so he writes what we call the severe letter, which I wish we had a copy of because there's points where this letter and the previous letter seemed severe. And if this isn't the severe letter, I want to know what he said. But he writes a severe letter, and he sends Titus, one of his closest companions, back to Corinth to try to win them back. And he just can't focus on ministry while he's waiting for his friend to return. So friend doesn't show up quick enough, so he speeds up his journey to get closer to Corinth so he can find out what's going on. Finally, Titus comes back, meets Paul, and says, Paul, you'll never believe what happened. They repented. They turned away. They've given up. In fact, probably too far, they rejected the false teacher because Paul has to tell them to take it down a notch. They went too far with their repentance. You need to forgive that guy and welcome him back in. But they've repented. They've restored to Paul, and that is why Paul writes this letter. So he's writing this letter. He's going to come see them in person very soon. He'll write Romans when he gets there. He'll be in a great mood. He'll write his epic masterpiece letter when he gets back to Corinth. And he's on his way there, and he's got to write this letter before he gets there to do two things. One, express his excitement. He's talking about the God of comfort. Do you remember that first paragraph? In 2 Corinthians, is the God of comfort who comforts the afflicted with the comfort with which he comforts those who have been comforted by the comfort of God. And it's just like he can't get two words without saying the word comfort. Why? He's excited. He is so excited that this church has repented. But, and there's usually a but, when there's something super awesome, he has to pull back and say, but. Some of the ideas that those false teachers implanted in the people at Corinth 
actually sounded kind of true about Paul. Paul may have been the right guy, but you know, when you hear criticism and someone hates you and they say slanderous things about you, you know, the hard part about that is maybe 10% of what they said was true. And when someone else hears it said about you, they're like, well, okay, sure they do that a little. Paul's got to recognize that there's people in the church who still, well, you know, that we may be on Paul's team now, but it is true that Paul's bad at this category. It is true that there's certain aspects of Paul's ministry that don't seem to line up right with what we believe about this loving God who blesses his people. And so really Paul is having to defend himself, defend the gospel, and teach correct theology all at the same time. That's his task in 2 Corinthians. So we've walked through that a great deal. We've seen how suffering is involved in the Christian life. We, we had the message Jacob gave for about the jars of clay and how we break, but God holds us together, the eternal weight of glory. We've seen how we are equipped for this ministry of reconciliation. And then we focused in last week on 521, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is the answer to Paul's question. So here's the specific accusation that was made against Paul that is kind of credible. It says, well, if you're following God and God loves his people and God blesses his people, why does it look more like God has cursed you? Because everywhere you go, Paul, people hate you. In fact, most of the people you share the gospel with don't repent. Most of the cities you go to end up running you off. You get beat you get stoned, you go hungry, you have ministry needs that God does not meet. You go through seasons of absolute poverty, you have seasons in life that don't look like God has taken care of his people like we supposedly believe. And Paul's answer to that question is basically, you misunderstood the gospel. You misunderstood how God works in the lives of believers. So let's jump down to verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and Paul, this is kind of, in a sense, his final call for repentance to his people. Now, he's still got a lot of letter left, but this is the climax of what he's going to say. He says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. So the accusation is, Paul, your ministry looks bad. Paul's response is, guys, our ministry's faultless. The thing about our ministry, actually, that you don't like is part of our ministry that is perfect. The thing you don't like is the thing we get exactly right. Well, what is that? But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. If we just look at that part of the list, how many of those sounded exciting to you? Not a single one, all right? Honestly, there is good. That's the fact of the matter, right? The joining up with the Christian life means, hey, let's have great beatings and imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights. I want to be hungry. I want to have to deal with great endurance and afflictions and hardships and calamity, no, we don't get excited about that. That's not exciting. We wouldn't think that's good news. It's the very opposite of the prosperity gospel. And Paul is here saying that itself, those hardships, those difficulties, 
commend, in other words, they prove, they demonstrate, they validate that his service is from God. So there's a, we're going to connect the dots here, there's an intrinsic relationship between you serving God and you having hardship. There's an intrinsic relationship between you serving God and having hardship. So fill in the first blank in your outline. The Christian life is often burdened by hardship. I say often because it's not always bad. Paul had some excellent seasons. He had a lot of bad ones. He had a lot of terrible seasons. So it's often burdened by hardship. Now, there's a hardship in the Christian life that you should expect. So many of you know I have livestock animals at my house. Um, turns out lamb tastes pretty good, so they are redeeming themselves a little bit. Um, poor, poor guy. But uh, anyway, two of them, two of the livestock I have in particular, are totally off limits to the freezer at the moment. All right? Named Jack-Jack, which is this little, if you've been to the house, you know what I'm talking about. Jack-Jack is a stupid little goat. And by stupid, I don't mean I don't like him. He's adorable. He's wonderful. I mean, he's literally, whatever goat IQ range is, he's at the bottom of that range, okay? He's just the dumb goat. You, you try to give him sweet feed, and goats worship sweet feed. Um, they love sweet feed. He's like, that doesn't look like grass. I'm not going to eat it. So maybe he's smarter. I don't know. But anyway, my relationship with Jack-Jack is you're adorable. That's why you don't die. Because the whole expression, grass is greener on the other side, was created, I'm telling you, by goats. Because you could put them in a fenced-in yard with the most beautiful bahia or alfalfa or timothy grass. doesn't matter. It's perfect grass. But there's a tulip in your neighbor's garden. Your grass doesn't count. Whatever is in your neighbor. In fact, you could just no grass in the neighbor's yard. You just put some yard clippings. Useless Stuff he doesn't even like. You know what that goat wants to do? It wants to eat this, the greener grass on the other side. So my neighbor in front of me has been very patient, but basically three or four or five or 20 times a day, the goat would go through the barbed wire fence. You know, I don't know why they bother with barbed wire fence. It's useless. It'll cut you to pieces, but a goat will run through it. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't stop them. They'll just bend it out of their way, go right through it, and so finally I decided we just can't have this in here. It's stressing me out. I know eventually my neighbor says it's not bothering them, but they're just being nice, you know I'm talking about. So i got to fix this. So I roll out some fence across this whole section, almost 250 feet. had to clear it out. I had to sawzall out there. I had the weed eater. I, I cleaned this area, ran the fence out. There were two posts, and it was, I say it was easier than starting from nothing because I had the barbed wire fence. But in some ways that was harder because I had to, get to the barbed wire fence that had stuff growing on it and connect it all up. And I finally get to the end of the row. I nail in. I am nailing in the last tack. I'm putting it on that board. And I'm having this internal conversation. I know I have just solved this problem. But there's a but. You know, I'm like, well, I recognize that the woods now over here, there's a fence in there. Got a few little spots that I know need to be patched up to make it 100% salt. But they always go through the section I just fixed. So there's, I got months, right, before they figure out that there is another, I hear sound. I look across the fence. You have one guess. Who is eating my neighbor's grass? Jack-Jack and Latte. So 
the moral of the story is, this is my fault. Because why do I have livestock? You see what I'm saying? Like, if I just didn't have livestock, I wouldn't have this burden. Just hint. No, no okay, so not, we're not really going to get rid of them. What I'm saying is, I brought that upon myself, did I not? Have you ever had a pet in your life, and you're like, this pet is annoying me? Why do I have this pet? All right? You got the animal. You willfully chose the suffering. You willfully chose the burden. All right? I'm not being specific here. I'm just being in general. Okay? Guys, what I'm saying is that's really, in a sense, there's certain types of suffering. There's certain types of burdens that are intrinsic to the Christian life. Just think about the Apostle Paul. If he had just quit going to every synagogue and telling them to change their religion, he would not have gotten beat and stoned every other weekend. He could have made a willful decision not to follow Jesus, and by doing that, removed half or 90% of the suffering in his life. His actions, his Christian behavior, his gospel calling, his Christianity was the problem. That was the thing that people caused saw in him that made them want to persecute him. That's why he had affliction and hardships and calamities, beatings, imprisonments. Every time we see Paul go to prison, it is intrinsically connected to his faith. Every time. What if he just quit? I just renounced that. He wouldn't have to go to prison anymore. But he also wouldn't be a believer. There's an intrinsic relationship between a lot of our suffering and our Christianity. They're connected together. So think about the prosperity gospel for just a moment. Here's the basis of the prosperity gospel. God loves you. You honor God in some specific way, be it tithing, be it church attendance, be it smiling really big from the pulpit, whatever it is, you do that thing, God will bless you, and blessing you specifically means he makes you happy by removing the hardship. Now, is removing the hardship the only way God can give you joy? It is not. So let's keep going. That's the first part. So these things that are happening to Paul are intrinsic, but pick up in verse 6. So that was the negative part of the list. Now he's demonstrating his, he's commending himself and his ministry by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. So not only is there an intrinsic sort of suffering that comes with the path Paul chose, there's also a mandate, a requirement, that in that path, he live in a Christ-like way. So the Christian life is marked by Christ-likeness. That's your second point in the outline. So think about Paul's ministry. He's going out there, and he's demonstrating the power of God by enduring the suffering. You remember Philippians 4.13? Everybody knows this idea that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, right? That's not talking about the football game. What is Paul talking about in that particular context? The church at Philippi had sent him money, and he's happy. He writes his happy letter to the church at Philippi because they gave him money. Okay, that makes sense. And his statement in there is, I'm really glad you gave me money. I'm grateful for it, but I didn't need it. I mean, I did, but I didn't, because I've learned the secret 
to the Christian life. And that secret, I can do poverty, I can do suffering, I can do pain, I can do good times, I can do wealth, I can do excitement, I can do victory. I can do both, or in other words, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So he has to do both things in order to fully demonstrate his dependence on Christ. He can love Christ in his suffering. He can love Christ in his victory. That's the same thing going on here. So we intrinsically have burdens, but while we experience those burdens, we live in a Christ-like manner, and as we do that, we're going to present the gospel. Well, let's keep going. Let's put all the pieces together. Verse 8, so through honor and dishonor. Now, the rest of these, first negative, then positive, now tension. How the list is going to flow. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and through praise. Well, which did Paul get? He got both. He had people hate him. He had people love him with a deep, genuine love. He had people speak falsehood about him. He had people praise his name in a good way. He says, we are treated as imposters and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Now, to put this together, so we're saying that the Christian life is going to be marked by suffering and joy at the same time. Now, here's where the prosperity gospel goes wrong. It says to have joy, you have to remove the suffering. It says to have glory, you have to remove the pain. To have happiness, you have to remove the bad relationship. To have victory, you have to remove all loss. And the gospel says the opposite, that best joy comes through the pain, through the suffering, and it's all modeled by the cross of Christ himself. Flip back to chapter 4, just real quick. Back to the jars of clay text. I want to pick up in verse 11. It says, for we who live are always being over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal bodies. So to manifest the life of Jesus, I have to be given over to death so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So the life of Jesus, when we're talking about the death of Jesus, is a uh, statement regarding what action Jesus did after his death. Resurrection. So what's happening in resurrection? Can you have the resurrection of Christ without the suffering of Christ? No. He had to die to raise. Guys, there's your Christian life paradigm, is that we all suffer in some way, but we all experience joy and glory and love and peace. In other ways, in the same moment sometimes, we suffer and rejoice at the same time. Time. Why? Because this is the gospel, and this is your life. This is how it's been designed. We follow Christ, often we suffer. Often things go wrong. Often things don't work out the way we plan. God sustains us, however. He grants us joy. He sets our eyes on the cross, and rather than being destroyed or crushed by our suffering, we are set free by it. 
And God gets glory through it. So the gospel becomes our paradigm for how we live life. So we can experience both joy now and, here's the beautiful thing, the prosperity gospel teachers aren't completely wrong. Because God will ultimately give us final resurrection. And in the final resurrection, what happens, what happens to the suffering bit? It is completely removed. There'll be no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, no more sorrow. Praise the Lord, no more sin. It's all purged from me, from you. We have perfect holiness. And so we get to die to the flesh every day so that we raise every day with newness of life in Christ. But we ultimately die in the flesh, literally, and will raise to new life bodily and absolute glory with God the Father. So there's a symbol in Christianity that is specifically designed to teach this. Before we go there, let me fill in my last blanks because I just realized I forgot. We glorify God in hardship by obediently living with the resurrection in view. To illustrate that, let me actually show you one more scripture. Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus literally embodied this text. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. So there's a race set before us. That's the part we have to endure. What's at the end of the race? The resurrection. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus followed the paradigm. This was what focused his sight. The joy set before him, he endured the shame. That's the gospel story. So now I want to talk about baptism. We're going to close out the service in a moment by partaking of the ordinance of baptism together. We have two as Christians. We're commanded to baptize, and we are commanded to take the Lord's Supper. Often we call it communion. We do one one time, that is baptism. We do the other regularly to represent the repeated need of forgiveness and celebration of forgiveness that we have in Christ. So I'm going to ask my baptismal candidates, get all technical with the terminology, to get prepared, and I'm going to do a short lesson on baptism as we get ready to do this. So I want you to real quick turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, picking up in verse 1, Paul's going to use the analogy of baptism to explain the Christian life. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now that's a weird question if you think about it. Why would we continue in sin? Paul has argued. There's so much grace in the gospel that the more we sin, the more grace God gives, the more glory God gets. Well, makes sense then. If I want to glorify God, I could sin a whole bunch and then get forgiven of a bigger debt, and then God gets even more glory because I was a worse sinner. Now, that's like a 12-year-old doing the, the gospel logic, right? There's something wrong with that. There's, there's a piece of that puzzle that's missing. So he's going to try to answer that question, but by no means, that's not how that works. How can he, we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized 
into his death. So that's very important. That's why we do baptism by immersion. When you had a dead body in the ancient world and you buried it, did you put part of it under the water, under the dirt? You put the whole thing, right? Cave. You, put the, you go all the way in the cave. Not at the entrance. Go all the way in. That's why we do baptism by immersion. So we go underwater. We die with Christ. So we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, now, have you ever seen a baptism where the pastor dunked the person and that was the end of the service? The cops would come, right? That's murder. That, that's not how that works. It's not designed to work that way. You go down. Do a two count just to scare them. No, okay, just kidding. You go down, and you come right back up. Now, what could that possibly represent in the Christian life? You died with Christ. You raised with Christ. Guys, here, make sure you never miss this. This is basic Christian theology, but we cannot let it slip away. We raised twice. We are spiritually dead until the gospel saves us. And then we raise from the dead spiritually at the moment of conversion. Baptism is a symbolic of that. We go under the water, we raise. It doesn't literally happen at that moment. It's symbolic of that moment, but we raise from the dead spiritually. So it's in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when we baptize someone, we follow, we illustrate, we present that same picture that Paul was defending himself by in 2 Corinthians. We, we die, we suffer, we follow Christ, we take up a cross, but we raise. And that's why even though we get buried, we suffer, we have joy. Even though there's dishonor, there is honor. Even though there is pain, there is redemption. Even though there is sin, there is grace. And as we illustrate the gospel through baptism... We glorify God and give the picture of what, bab of what the Christian life will be. So, we're baptizing two people today. I'm very excited. Actually, I should probably take off my electronics, huh? I guess, yeah. So, I've never had to deal with the logistics of doing this inside. Um, we've always gone to the river, and I've had to worry about slipping down and getting eaten by an alligator. So... So it's a little different this time around. Um, so here's what's going to happen. We're going to let the, we wanted the kids to see this, and so they're they're coming in. But I'm going to come down, and we're going to do the baptism right here, and then we're going to close with a hymn. And as they get settled, let me give a little bit of detail about what's going on. So first, we're going to baptize Georgia, and Georgia has been um, making some changes in life. I'd actually received a comment about Georgia. Perhaps she was getting close to making a decision for the Lord before she even said anything. So I thought it was very interesting to me when she came and talked to me. She's almost exactly the same age and similar circumstances I myself was when I came to the Lord and what I consider my true conversion. I, I did. I was one of those kids that everybody else was getting baptized, so I wanted to get baptized when I was little. But I very confidently know the Lord saved me around the age of 10, and I, when I understood the gospel for the first time, and we're, we're cautious about baptizing children before they get it here, but I'm very confident after talking 
with Georgia that she does get it. I know uh, Corey and Rachel are both very excited. We, we talked a little in my office, and I went over to their house, and I am very confident as your pastor that I can commend before you that Georgia has indeed been redeemed by the grace of the Lord. The blood of Christ is applied to her soul, and she has been born again. And so we want to celebrate that together. So I'm going to walk down and just talk loud after this point. 